The Ringer's music critic Rob Harvilla curates and explores 60 iconic songs from the 90s that define the decade. Rob is joined by a variety of guests to break it all down as they turn back the clock. Check out 60 songs that explain the 90s exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now, they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. For first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, he's just been cast in Succession Season 3. It's Andy Greenwald. Cat's out of the bag. Yeah, you're playing Pat Riley. I want to join a team where there's room for me to work within the offense. You know what I mean? And Succession, a little thin cupboard this year, right? We're going to talk a little bit about Succession's... Uh, right barrage of of casting announcements Andy it's it's uh we're recording this on Thursday uh this will probably go up Thursday night Friday morning because we recap top chef so we'll have obviously uh the top chef episode discussed in this episode of the pod we're also uh we feature today a lovely interview with Rob McElhenney who everybody knows from it's always sunny in Philadelphia and Mythic Quest and Mythic Quest's second season is coming uh I believe on Friday so people can start to check that out it is uh on par, if not better, than the first season, which I loved. And it was really cool to chat with Rob because, you know, it was one of those things where I think you go into it and you're like, oh, this is this guy is going to be like this comic genius on the pod or this incredibly funny person. And he is very funny, but really, really thoughtful about the making of the show and what, what that sounds like making. what goes yeah. through your mind every day before you record with me. That's we were right. like, I'm so excited. This guy's so funny. And then you find out that I've got layers. <laughs> it's true. Uh, so really cool chat with him. I hope people stick around and listen to my conversation with Rob McElhenney. Andy, how are you doing? Great. Great. Yeah, I'm great too. Thanks for asking. Uh, oh, I assume because I'm looking at your face. <laughs> and uh, I wanted to go through a couple of news items before we got to uh, Top Chef today. And the first one being what I we just joked about, which was this sort of Every three days getting to find out that another pretty famous person is going to be on Succession Season mm-hmm. 3. Succession Season 3 is now up there with the other HBO show that is like the casting announcement favorite, which is Showtime, the Lakers show that they're doing. Both of which will apparently feature Adrian Brody. Adrian Brody is joining Succession Season 3, playing a uh, an activist investor, which I guess is kind of like... Uh, is that like Carl Icahn? Is that that the guy? Is he, is he an activist investor? I guess it depends what he's active for. Like, is he a frisky investor or well, is he himself? He just likes buying old school American companies and making them great again, right? Right. I guess an activist <laughs> investor could also be like I'm joking. an Elon, Elon Musk type, right? Uh, 
Yeah, and he's being more like, of like a founder dude, I think. So the other casting announcement that they made this week, I believe, was Alexander Skarsgård is joining right. the show as a, I mean, honestly, it does sound as like- a passive investor? Or it sounds like my, my ultimate boss, Daniel Ek, is who he's playing. He's playing a yes. tech founder and CEO. So uh, Skarsgård, Adrian Brody, they joined Sana Lathan, who's al- was already announced she's playing a lawyer on the show. This is definitely like file undertakes, I don't really believe. I <laughs> can't wait. Is there enough ball for everybody? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, the show is so juicy. You know what I mean? There's just so much stuff there, not just within the family, but within the larger world, and especially after the last year we've had. I think there's more than enough reps for everyone. And I would say that Fileless undertakes that we can revisit when the show comes back. I think that that we would have noticed this anyway had mm-hmm. season three filmed and then debuted as it was intended to uh, last year. Yeah, but I Aug- think August that, is when it usually comes back, right? Right, right. But I do think that the this isn't the case with every show, but I do think that the enforced break that Succession has had to weather will actually increase its presence in the culture. I think it increases its stature. Mm-hmm. I think that we saw this coming after the first season into the second season, and then the Emmys reflected it as well. This is HBO's primetime show right now. This is the show that is a, uh, it, it, it's a uniter. People adore it. Comedy people love it. Drama people love it. This is the show people in this town and other towns like to talk about and watch. And I just have the feeling like these kind of like, oh, just casually dropping Oscar winners into the show. Yeah. This is kind of an exciting run for it. And I just feel like when it comes back, it will have that energy that um, other returning greats have had when they've come back from great seasons. But I think it's going to feel a little bit like what happened with Breaking Bad when it was suddenly, you know, just recognized as one of, if not the right. greatest show on TV, mostly because of people catching up in the interim. I think a lot of people have probably joined the joined the board, so to speak, during this break. Yeah, I would imagine that these, uh, that Brody and Skarsgård are going to be doing Cherry Jones-style three-episode arcs, maybe. You know what I mean? Like, that's sort of the ingenious part about this show is that it mm-hmm. employs pretty old-school ideas where you you can bring in somebody to do a little bit of a run like that, like the way they do on Law & Order or Grey's Anatomy or, or any other show you can think of over the, the years. And... And get them in and out. And, and, you know, I don't know necessarily that Adrian Brody's character is going to change the direction of the show necessarily. I think it would be more like there's a lot of activity going on around around the company and, and these two guys are, are factors in it. You mentioned HBO and this, this, this is the show that they've, this is their kind of golden goose right now. There were pictures released, mm-hmm. uh, publicity stills from House of the Dragon, which is the Game of Thrones spinoff, the Game of Thrones prequel that they're uh, in production um, with uh, Matt Smith starring all manner of Targaryens and Hightowers involved. And obviously, if it's called House of the Dragon, you can imagine some flappy things coming. And uh, I thought it was interesting that they did not have a Patty Considine uh, Mm -hmm. picture. I don't know if he's playing a dragon or not. You know, (laughs) it doesn't seem... (laughs) (laughs) Sir, are you a dragon? But... um, yeah, I'm asking another grown man if he has a reaction to <laughs> Game think, of Thrones publicity stills. Do you but, think it's one of those things? So I just saw, I just saw on online Richard Shepard, uh, great director, nice guy, was talking did, about how his first film came out. It was called like the Linguini Incident or something. Came out like 30 years ago, and David, he was 25 years old. He got a movie set up, and he sent a script to David Bowie's agents, being like, "Would Mr. Bowie consider playing this?" 
character parks. I know he's interested in doing some acting at the moment. And the, the script came back being like, Mr. Bowie would like to star in the movie if that's interesting to you. And so he directed David Bowie in his first movie. And I wonder if Patty Considine was sent the script being like, would you like to, to play, you know, Horatio Targaryen, like right. grand vizlord <laughs> of the fucking keep or whatever. And he was just like, Mr. Considine, thanks to you for the submission. He would like to play, you know, Flamor, yeah. the giant dragon. And then what do you do? You got to be like, well, Mr. Considine wants to play the dragon. Yeah, I'm into it. I'm, I'm I'm into I it. want to play Nikola Jokic, head so, dragon of, of, of the Waystar Royco company. So massively overrated. No, so I think um, you're asking me my reaction to two still photos of people with blonde wigs standing on cliffs. Yeah. And I got to tell you, Chris, there's no way that your react anyone's reaction to these photos is just going to reinforce the narrative they're already carrying within them. And so because of that, I will oh, that's be- a good point honest with you. I mean, if you're excited, if you were really pumped to see anything Targaryen related, you're going to be like, great, they're back on the cliffs. Looks good. No notes. My thing was, what are we doing again? And that's not HBO's problem yet. That's not any of the people involved in House of the Dragons problem yet, because we are on, to quote the great Ross, we were, we are on a break, you know, mm-hmm. from, from, from <laughs> I thought you Game were of Thrones. Rick Ross. <laughs> Or Doug like, Ross from I was early like, season Rick ER. Ross have a song called We Were on a Break? <laughs> no, I don't think Rick Ross, at least in terms of my understanding of his oeuvre, he rarely expresses concern about, you know, yeah. traditional romantic role play. That was or not a line in mafia music, I don't think. Yeah. None of the none of mafia music. One, two, three, four, none of the greats. Yeah. So um I I'm it's probably not their problem yet. But I do think, and this is something that we've been kind of teasing about and talking about, and you know, it's been underlying our conversations. It's going to be more of a hard reboot, I think, to get people on board with this than may have been the case had the had the spinoff been locked and loaded and ready to go within a year of Game of Thrones going off the air. We had this conversation offline, just so people know how 100 we keep it. Like, if you want to know if Andy and I are sending each other concerned troll texts about IP when we're not on the clock, mm-hmm. it does happen. And, yeah. I, you know, I'm, I'm really, really fascinated to see whether or not the market is still there. I know it will be. I know. I mean, I'm, I guess like this is like, I, I, I guess I just wonder whether or not the market will be there to make this a mainstream show. And a mainstream sensation and a cultural sensation the way the original show was, the way the Mothership show was. I have that same question about Lord of the Rings. I think watching this happen for Mandalorian would suggest that that there's certainly a pathway to have it. Whether or not there is anything as cute as Baby Yoda in Game of Thrones, I don't know. I mean, I guess it, it depends on whether or not you chalk up all of Mandalorian's success to Baby Yoda and that cameo at the end. Um, Popeye was pretty cute. In the middle seasons of Game sure, of Thrones, yeah, that's a nice, true. Nice guy. That's true. Um, I, the thing that I think, and this is sort of what we were texting about, that I think is interesting is it will be a real time uh, test of what audiences' appetites are and how diversified they've become in terms of the overall umbrella of genre entertainment. Because to your point, Lord of the Rings was a phenomenon in movie theaters for a limited amount of time, a couple of years. Um, people had obviously loved and read the books and treasured them for decades. So there was a built-in fan base. And they were presented on such a scale that at that time still felt pretty novel. Oh, we're mm-hmm. taking this seriously. We're pouring money into it and putting effects to the degree that we've never seen before. Good actors are coming aboard, et cetera, et cetera. Game of Thrones 
was genre in fantasy, but it also was, as you're saying, the gateway drug for people who would watch The Sopranos to also yeah. watch a show that had magic in it. Yeah, or people are saying like that. It's like it's like the the show, the other shows you like. It's just got like people have swords and there's dragons. I know that sometimes we still play the card of look. We're just a couple of guys who can't believe there's an X Men movie. That ship has general has pretty much sailed now. There yeah. has been so many years of constant barrage that now our understanding of entertainment is it, it, the idea that these superheroes are TV, that they, they are movies, that they are all ages entertainment. That's baked in now. You know, we that we don't need to have that argument anymore because we're about to have like six Spider Men in a single movie. You know what I mean? I'm not sure if the mainstream, uh, mainstream, yeah, I'll say mainstream audience is as bought in to swords and sorcery mm-hmm. as they are um, capes and shields. Maybe maybe it's all one thing, but I'm My not sure that it is. Argument for House of Dragon is basically that there are there is some of that kind of, um, if you are an Arden fan and you have done all this research and you've read about these characters, you've read the, the books, like you will probably go into it with the same enthusiasm and anticipation that people went into Game of Thrones mm-hmm. where you were sitting with somebody who had read the books and they would just be like, man, just you, just you fucking wait. This dinner is not going to go well. And <laughs> I think, I think that is exciting. I, I do. I'm what I, I guess I'm, what I'm really curious about is not so much whether or not the show is good or not. That'll be determined by factors that have nothing to do with us is whether it's how it's received, how it's processed, how patient people are with it. Yeah. And Look, all the, all these other factors that I think, uh, you know, have changed over the 10 years. The show's going to do really well right from the start. It's probably going to be good. I, I don't want to suggest otherwise. Yeah, I but think so. I do think if we are keeping on our, you know, <laughs> keep it 100 concern troll hats on, the specific conditions of the Game of Thrones show were pretty unique in that you had a bunch of obsessive fans who were baked in and, and, and bought in from the beginning. And part of their thrill was not just watching newbies discover how cool and insane some of these storylines would be. It was that ultimately all of us, noobs and veterans united, were on the same journey headed mm-hmm. towards the unknown. They knew a lot of what was going to happen and they were excited to see it made flesh or CGI, but they didn't know what it all meant yet. They were excited. They had theories about R&L and all that, but we were all in the dark about the final destination. Oh, I forgot. The, I forgot all about r Oh, you'd never forget. <laughs> but the thing is, with prequels, it's a lot of the excess knowledge. I mean, people will be excited to be like, oh, I've heard about that Targaryen, or how great it is to finally see this festival or this battle. Apologies to Mallory and Jason, who could have filled in those blanks mm-hmm. for me. But towards what end? It is a problem with these large narratives, and it's the one that we come up against with Star Wars all the time, which was... All the all the stories that landed were start were Skywalker stories, and then what is it after that? You know, and so we'll see if there is still enough un unwritten mystery or future, baked, you know, inside of the inside of the George Martin's world. There probably is, but probably it'll it'll be interesting to see. One last thing, uh, so. As everybody I'm sure is aware by now, Loki is coming uh, is the next MCU show that's coming on uh, in June, early June, I believe. And it was Getting just earlier. announced. Getting it was supposed to be July, June 11th, and now it has been moved to June 9th, and it will be going on Wednesdays going forward. And the word is that it's still going to be a midnight 
aired show. So it will go up as Tuesday turns into Wednesday. I think this is interesting, actually. Because so Feige knows we reasons. record on Thursdays? I think he's just like, these guys, you know, they're chasing Top Chef all spring. Let's give him no something one, to talk about this. No summer. one works harder than those two. Um, I think it's interesting. Obviously, they're moving off of Fridays, I think, because of the anticipation that there will be movies again and that there will be movies in theaters and people will be like, Friday, it's time to go to the movies. I can't stay home and watch Loki. The flip of this is that I do think it is more difficult for most people to watch a TV show on Wednesday morning or Wednesday afternoon than it is Friday morning or Friday afternoon. Typically, like in my experience, the work week softens on Friday. Like you can kind of maybe cut out a little early. Maybe you can do something in the morning. Maybe there's like some some things you can do. Also, maybe people are a little bit more willing to stay up late on a Thursday night mm-hmm. because Friday is not going to be that taxing. So I find it interesting that they're going to put this up Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, and that everybody is just kind of going to be in the middle of their work week or whatever. And that kind of like... Which, can I look at Twitter for the next two days until I see what happens in Loki? Because I don't know. I think I, I've harped on this a lot, but I do find that the lack of clarity or the lack of sort of collective viewing with these MCU shows is like one of the only flaws I find with like the way that they've rolled these out. Obviously, it's working very well for them. So mm-hmm. they don't need my advice. Uh, any thoughts on the Wednesday move for them? Well, I think that it it's hard for us because we see everything through the prism of a, when we're recording, but also mm-hmm. we do, because we are plugged in professionally, think about the success metric for shows based on online chatter or yeah, clicks right. or articles right. and, and, you know, driven. And so if that still, but if that does still have any uh, relevance in the larger world, Wednesday's better because then there's two days of blog posts and chatter, you know, mm-hmm. during the work week before it just sort of vanishes into the weekend. I don't think, I'm sure, I mean, they have, because of the way Disney Plus is set up, they have limitless amounts of data. They know exactly when people are watching it and what it means. And I'm sure they're very happy with what they've seen. I don't think they would, it's hard to imagine WandaVision or or Falcon doing better, you know, at least in terms of the opaque sense of better, since we don't have the data, had they been on a different day. But, so I, I, I as much as I do want to overthink it, I think that you nailed it with your first observation. Fridays are for movies again. Mm-hmm. You know, they just had their, you know, they're big, like, hey, everybody, let's go back to the movies that I'm still weeping over. You know, it was just very meaningful. <laughs> <You're me>. so- <laughs> that was it so was. weird. It was. I thought it was cool. Yeah, Hayek just- was on a horse. I know, but you had like 13 weeks of being like, man, I may have, this This stuff is pretty corny. And then you just came bursting through the wall like the Kool-Aid man being like, Stan Lee is speaking to me about family. Well, S- Stan Lee didn't narrate the footage of like the GLC bombing. You know what I mean? If he'd been like, we are one people, Carly, then I maybe uh, would have had a different reaction. Let's. Um, uh, here's why I'm excited about Loki. Last thing, Chris, I'll just say it. It just looks fun. That's part of it too. I just, I'd like this show to be funny and fun. Yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled for this show. I can't wait. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll do Top Chef. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now, they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. For first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. 
This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Alrighty, Andy, uh, here we are, back to Stumptown. Um, This episode of Top Chef Portland, I found kind of frustrating. Oh, wow, coming in with something. Okay, talk about quickfire. Well, um, I'll start from the end because that's where, where I kind of got frustrated. Uh, you know, and I, I'm looking for a little bit of historical context here from you. So if you can mm. think of some incidents where like this is being corrected, maybe my brain is just like mush and I, I just associate every Top Chef season with one another and I don't have like an idea about this. But it seemed to me that this was the wrong challenge to do a double elimination on. Um, both in terms of the sort of greater purpose of the challenge, which was sort of mm. obviously paying tribute to the ingredients and the um, the processes of indigenous peoples and Native Americans, and also just like the level of cooking that obviously we saw in that challenge, it was finale-esque in the sense that the thing that's what's going to send two people home mm-hmm. was going to be a really like a marginal error. Now, whether or not you call what happened with Gabriel and Nelson a marginal error or whether you think it's like a you know a cardinal sin to do to cook fish too hard i i'm well, that's up for debate but i kind of wish this was one of those things where maybe someone in like the the whether it's producers or whether it's like while they're doing it obviously once they get the ball rolling they can't really take it back that this mm-hmm. is going to be a double elimination but i think as evidenced by whatever this last chance kitchen situation is that they pull at the end of the episode. And Andy and I are recording this on Thursday afternoon, so we haven't had a chance to see Last Chance Kitchen yet, so we don't know uh, what how they do Gabriel and Nelson slash what happens with Jamie in relation to those two. But I just thought, like, this is one where I think, like, either A, have a single elimination, or B, like, I, I don't know. I, 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 I wasn't happy with the way that this worked out. I hear you, but I would say that that means the show is succeeding as a competition show, that you feel that way. Yeah. Going into it, there was no way of knowing. I mean, this was really hard. Really, really, really hard challenge. So I think going into it, there was no way of knowing that almost everyone would do so well that it would come down to ticky-tack, you know, missed notes or slightly, you know, technical stuff. Um, There was very high likelihood that a a team would just completely, more than one team would completely crash and burn, which wasn't the case, which made Mm -hmm. for, you know, a pretty exciting and satisfying episode, I think. The reason why I think this was a good choice for a double elimination, which generally I'm not a fan of, but, you know, when they are tying in the drama with a last chance kitchen, sudden salvation, whatever, you, you sort of see why they're doing it to keep things fresh and keep people on their toes, et cetera, et cetera. The reason why I think this was a good challenge for that was because if you're doing a surf and turf teamed up challenge, the temptation to hide behind one strong half of a dish is enormous. You know, if you have, I mean, these pairings were absurd on paper. Was it antelope and, and I, I mean, I don't even have it in front of me, but yeah, no, I mean, there was uh, among others, we had, um, 
a venison with a sturgeon and caviar. Gabe and Don right. did bison with catfish, but they didn't fry the catfish. Maria and, and Byron did like a, a salmon with like a mole. I can't remember what their other protein was, but there was like, these were tough, tough combinations. And and so there's a, there's a, a version of this where it's a single elimination where someone does a perfectly cooked piece of rabbit and then someone does an interesting smelt dish. And then if one is good and then that person goes home and it's just cut and dried. So this forced collaboration in a way. So you couldn't just isolate yourself and hide behind your own dish, which I think created better combinations on the plate. It didn't necessarily produce friction, sparks, you know, which again is where the show has been heading. And I'm, I think I end up saying this every week, but I'm cool with that. I, I really like the show more when they, when the contestants respect each other and aren't, no one particularly is bullying or throwing it on, throwing anyone under the bus. So I hear you, but I also think that we are headed towards, as you said, Chris, like we, we haven't seen Last Chance Kitchen. I don't think it would matter necessarily as much as we did. What they will probably do is one of those three-headed play-in tournaments that they've done before mm-hmm. where there's a two-part challenge. The, the winner first challenge of, eliminates one yeah, of the this, people yeah. and then the next person walks in. I also have a pretty strong sense and people who, who are listening to this on Friday after Last Chance Kitchen has aired can feel free to roast me about it, although not as hard as they roasted that steelhead, <laughs> um, <laughs> that it won't reveal the winner, that the winner of uh, and then the Last Chance Kitchen will Thursday, walk into the kitchen next week. In. That said, if you want my veteran opinion, and again, they're always two steps ahead of me. So they may have doctored this so that everyone would assume this. Next week on Top Chef... They show Tom or Padme reintroducing someone to the kitchen, and everyone seems thrilled, mm-hmm. which makes me think it's probably not Gabriel. But they all kind of seem to like each other, so maybe that was just a yeah. I mean, I think there was a, Gabriel's gotten an edit that would suggest he is not the most popular guy, you know, and that um, or that at least he's difficult to work with in in team competitions, at least, and you know, even there's references to him being an asshole at the end of the episode lovingly but in a in a uh, loving way yeah in a, in a in a loving way and then like there's like a shot where it's like obviously when Gabriel and Nelson are walking off like everybody's kind of got their arm around Nelson but Gabriel is like solo like going out probably because he's like I'm going to that, last year's like I can't walk yeah right Nelson is leaving the field like Albert Pujols is leaving the Angels locker room today so you know what I mean second straight like, season where we've had like basically an injury on this show like I, Gregory's back no, last season <laughs> I'm worried about Nelson. Nelson is, seems just like a beautiful person. Yeah. He seems so chill. He seems so kind. Like, I would just like to hang out and be around him. He doesn't even need to cook. Don't even stand up, Nelson. You know what I mean? But like, kitchen repetitive stress injuries are real in the kitchen. And my guy needs, he needs some work done, you know? Like, can the, can the maybe they don't want a feature in Food and Wine magazine. You know what I mean? Maybe they just want to go visit a sports science They want institute. Dr. James Andrews to do the, yes. the knee surgery. Yeah. Yes, I think that's exactly right. I don't think that's so far-fetched. Um, here's another, just for the sake of conversation, question for you. Okay. What would you have said if I, if I had said we should have had the elimination challenge essentially be the quick fire? Although, obviously, you would have to tweak it because you couldn't do a quick fire. With, with all these different components probably, but have the mushrooms be the, the elimination challenge. I, see, I think, I think this was a successful elimination challenge because it was, I mean, I'll just say it plain. I, I mean, surf and turf is dumb. I just think as a concept, do, do you, you ever, ever go- actually had it? it? 
it's it's just usually dumb. It's just like some, someone was just like, well, I can't decide between these two luxurious ingredients, so I'll have both on a plate. I just always remember the moment in Midnight Run where they're on the plane. Do you, have you ever, you've seen Midnight Run, I assume. And they're on yes. the plane. And uh, De Niro's like, what are you going to have for dinner? And he's just like, I'm not hungry. He's like, well, why don't you get a little lobster and I get a little steak and I can get a little surf and turf. <laughs> yeah, that's it. It's just like, well, lobster's fancy, steak's fancy. Let's Gordon's do both. like, these things go down. <laughs> That's that's my attitude. Yeah. In the restaurants and on airplanes. Um, because I think they are essentially kind of, a, it's kind of a, a, a dumb idea. What we got was best case scenario. I think they, they go back to this well of a surf and turf idea because A, it's kind of hacky and dumb and also therefore challenging. And what was impressive about this challenge, and, and I'll, I'll go back to it again, I think it had to do with it being a double elimination that forced the collaborative creativity. The dream scenario is a Shodacera combination. Mm-hmm. Not just, to my mind, the two best competitors teaming up and just getting along and broing out and just smoking everyone more than that smoked salmon. It's that they rethought what it could be and what mm-hmm. it meant, you know, and they had a fish that is really more complimentary and more of a use it as like a base ingredient like you would normally use like a like an allium like an onion or garlic or something put it in almost everything and the other the other team that did that was the other team that I think was pretty quickly made you know they were they were safe which is the team that did the it was the Avishar and Chris team where they did the they were um, doing like a fish and chips almost kind of well but they took the the fish was the main course Mm -hmm. and the 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 game meat, in this case was venison, I think, was more like a it was like Croquette. a fritter on the side yeah. of it, right? And so mm-hmm. you're sort of flipping the understanding of it. And that's, it's a big ask. They're always asking these chefs, they're basically like, we think that you're creative geniuses, be creative geniuses and totally reinvent and surprise us, reinvent something and surprise us in this ridiculous amount of time in pouring rain uh, with rainbows blinding you when bees aren't stinging you. Well, it's been an interesting like wrinkle, or not even a wrinkle, but a development this season because I don't think... It's it's been a very like new text or new criticism season where I think everything that's on the plate is what gets judged, not any of the narrative going into it or coming out of it. Mm. So Jamie did not reveal that Gabriel encouraged her to under not undercook her chicken wing, but just like that it should be right. like on the lighter side. She didn't she didn't throw him under the bus last week. And then this week, you know, I thought that the going into that meal, Gabriel kind of like set that surf and turf up his concept so to speak was i'll make a good thing and you make a good thing and that should be two good things on the plate and we're all set so even though they cooked the fish too hard and whether that was nelson's fault or his knees or whatever the pills wearing off like ultimately i think conceptually it was the last place dish right yeah absolutely and it was also a dish that you would make i mean he was acting like whether he was aware of it or not like he had immunity like i'm just gonna hide here on turf corner and let the surf go down basically it just wasn't a winning dish because they didn't go for it at the end all of a sudden he had a you know he had a, a good and creative idea about taking the fish skin and wrapping the meat in that et cetera, et cetera. but yeah it, it was just it, it it was a conceptual failure in addition to being a technical failure and that's why it went the way it did any any magical mushrooms takes that you have for the the elimination well, I know I know we're kind of jumping all over I, the place but this was I, an I do it was inevitable that they were gonna do a mushroom challenge Gabriel I mean I, I imagine that Gabriel's face during Quickfire is similar to our faces during Mayor of Easttown. You know, whenever someone like orders a hoagie or 
drinks a yingling. Like, I know that beer. You know, we're making the Leonardo DiCaprio uh, meme. So that was inevitable. The having them like cook over tiny tree stumps, like you you guys just let them, just let them chop the mushrooms. You know what I mean? You don't need to get that cute. But what I did want to say, and it, it began in the beginning was, this might be a recurring segment until we get him on the podcast. But Chris, we got to talk about Tom. Because Tom shows up for the quick fire and he immediately drops an all-timer, which is he says, mushrooms are his favorite ingredient, okay? Mm-hmm. Because, and this is a quote, they are as close as you can get to actually eating the earth. Right. Now, I want to press pause here on life and be like, was this the goal? Like, have I been yeah. approaching, cooking, dining, feeding myself wrong for over 40 years now? Was I always trying to get closer to physically eating the planet that we live on? Because if so, <laughs> I've made some terrible choices. Okay, Galacticus, yeah. Seriously. <laughs> yeah. It, it's it's Galactus, but oh, point taken. Bad. I don't know whether what's more disturbing. Tom kind of mm-hmm. never laughing or smiling this mm-hmm. season, not being in it that much this season, or his hats. Yeah, well, this is where we're going next. Because then he shows up to this beautiful ceremony where the native hosts are, they look stunning and gorgeous. And once again, kudos to the show's producers for really doing the work and Incredible reaching out setting. to communities. And this is at the uh, the Umatilla Indian Reservation. The Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation were hosting it, them. And it's this area, I guess, off the Columbia River. I've never been there, but I like need to go tomorrow. It was beautiful. It was respectful. It was They're educational. cooking in a fucking rainbow, basically. It, it's incredible. Yeah. And f- with that as the backdrop, Tom wears a schmada. Okay, Tom looks like he is a day player in Crossing Delancey. Yeah. Like, I, I, I am so confused by the thinking behind it because at first I thought he was attempting to, to, to pay respects in some way by wearing the bag they harvested the duck potatoes in on his head to show that he values them. That was not the case. And then it became clear that he was wearing something because it was cold. And it clearly got yeah, colder. Yeah, because they got like the blankets on and everything. Blankets. Yeah. But like, you know, I, I live in Southern California, so it's mostly warm. But even I know that there are different vessels for your skull to keep it warm, right? It was a choice at sure. a certain point. Yes. It was incredible. It was, it was really incredible. It, it's a hat I haven't seen. It's a knit cap I have not seen since possibly entourage who, who who would wear that in entourage oh it was like that that kind of hat was like the i did a couple i did a three episode arc on supernatural and like uh, you know i have like a, a goatee and i you know like i'm i'm fighting with adrian grenier for oh for and i'm like courtside parts. at a clippers game yeah maybe and- sitting with my agent who happened who's whose other like guest did, like fell through at the last second frankie muñez or something where's this M- hat? maybe yeah yeah. Circa 2005. Right. Yeah, I didn't really have anything like like illuminating to say about the uh, quick fire. I, I'm a fan of mushrooms. I'm sure those would have been delicious. Do you... Um, I was glad Gabriel got to have... Do you, I, can I wanted. ask you, actually, let me ask you this. Yeah. Okay. Mushrooms. Yeah. Can they be the main character of the novel? <laughs> I mean, we're, we're, For we're you, trying are you, as they, a culture. People are working real hard to be like... That this this is a mushroom dish rather than Dude. like here's a side you know like here's like a bro cauliflower needs a breather you know what I mean <laughs> yeah, like imagine true. being cauliflower I've cauliflower just, personally I've moved on to shredded carrots so it's like <laughs> well cauliflower spends the chillest century imaginable being like we're good we're just white broccoli 
Nobody's that interested in us, but we're yes. here if you need us. Now we're steak. Then, now we're pizza crust. All of now a sudden, we're rice. We're, we are now the staple of cuisine that could be formed into anything. I mean, the stress levels must be off the chain. I mean, it's yeah. just the usage rate, to put it in NBA terms, Yeah. right? So I appreciate Mushroom being like, well, we just grow here, so it's fine. You lean on us. <laughs> I think that we are easier to produce. Shouts to our brethren in Kennett Square, Pennsylvania. Can it be good? Yeah, like I had an Al Pastor-style mushroom taco here in Los Angeles the other day. It was very good. I love yeah. mushrooms. No, they, they can't. I'm not saying mushrooms aren't good. I just think that it's, they're starting to get, you're asking like Paul Giamatti to be Brad Pitt sometimes. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're asking the character actor to take the lead. Well, in that case, Paul Giamatti's thrilled. (laughs) Am I worried about our palates or am I worried about like the the crops? Like, are we we overly taxing them? Look, that ship sailed for me. My thing is perpetually, (laughs) now I realize that I said this about the Oscars. So I guess I guess I guess the the stock room's a little low. We should be worried about crops. Much much but, like the, the mushroom supply. But when you start replacing things for other things, I think is when you screw up. Like if you're cooking vegetarian, that's wonderful and they're delicious traditions and food ways but of But you don't like re- replacement foods. Yeah, it just doesn't make sense to me. Like Do you like just, an impossible burger? I never had it. I've never tried one. No. Because you know why? You know why? Because on the menu, there's also a burger burger. Not if you so go to why? an impossible burger restaurant. Right. So I like I will go, next time in New York, I'll go to Superiority Burger, where they make a veggie burger that's apparently amazing. And it's a veggie burger. It's not like the third choice on the menu. You know what I mean? That's And also, it isn't made to be like, look, it bleeds. So like you're not into that. For global health reasons and like, I'm we got to save the environment. You. you don't have to no, worry no. about that. Yeah. I'm saying I support... The idea of like making ourselves and our planet healthier through alternate food alternatives. But I've never walked into a sports bar and like perused the menu and been like, should I have a cheeseburger or an impossible burger? Because I'm trying to cut 17 calories because this <laughs> fried hockey puck of science with cheese on it is marginally less saturated. I don't get it. Kai, do, yes, like, do you like impossible burgers? I've also never had an impossible burger. Jesus. I'm a, I'm on the long the same thinking as Andy where it's like I don't really know what's in an impossible burger, but I do know what's in a real burger. <laughs> yeah, cow meat. Also, Kaya goes camping. So Kaya's tougher than both of us put together. She just eats the food. This isn't a strong world's strongest man competition. I was just taking a, a room survey if you'd had impossible burger. You are Leslie Nope. We are collectively Ron Swanson. Okay, Chris, have you had one? Do you like yeah, it? Yeah, I like them. Yeah. I actually, you, and I find that I feel a little less like meat fever after. Because, you know, I, like sometimes if you just like <laughs> eat, I personally like a smash burger. Like if I could, if I can yeah. have my choice, I'm just going Shake Shack. I'm just going to get the smash burger. But totally. I think my problem is I, I kind of fell out of love with burgers when it was more like pub burgers were oh, the I style. Can't do that. No, I and like it was thin, just like, yeah. here's a giant patty with like a giant fucking brioche bun and 700 toppings. Like I was just kind of like, fam, like that's like a steak with bread. So yeah. I'm a smash burger dude. And then if I'm going to do anything a little bit bigger than that or different than that, I'll do impossible burger. I've tried to do impossible smash burgers and I just, there's just something missing. Let, let me, <laughs> let me set the scene here because I, it was 2004. You and I, and a couple of our friends went to see 
a reunited Fleetwood Mac oh, at yeah. the Tweeter Center in New Jersey. Camden. and In Camden, New Jersey. And great show. Great night. A lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember that, I don't know whether it was us or our friends Max and Mara, like brought food yeah. to enjoy in the parking lot. And I don't remember what the food was. I do remember you grabbing my arm and being like, I think I think I have meat sweats. You're like, I, I'm not well. I think I ate a lot of chicken. And it wasn't- Was it necess- barbecue or something? Yeah, what was it was situation? something. I think it was just like, I think we it was like one of those things where we hadn't eaten all day. Right. And then there was so, all of a sudden buckets of food. This is probably terrible content. No, no, but-, but And I was just like, and thing. I was just like, I am now, I am now having visions because I've just communed with this bird, multiple birds here. And I'm like, now we have to go watch Lindsey Buckingham. It's it's legitimate, and I will say that in an in an homage to your friendship advice style of the time, which was ba- mostly based on Doctor House suggesting that someone puts a cold towel on things so they don't feel well. I think that I attempted to nurse you back to health through a sixty four ounce concession Michelob or whatever, which probably wasn't the right move. But That's probably right. All this is to say, yeah, I, I just feel like if you're gonna do a cheeseburger, don't do it every day, but like do it. And then mm-hmm. the other times, have have a different dish based around mushrooms and cauliflower, which are also good. Last point, last question. Yeah. Are Shoda and Sarah the kindest, gentlest frontrunners in Top Chef history? Team Tiny. They're little buddies. Even Melissa was a killer. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, Melissa was had a little not-here-to-make-friends energy. Like, Brooke was a killer, you know? Yep. I think that this is kind of reminding me of Denver a little bit. Of like these these people are just like sweethearts and they really like each other. Yes, I I think it's it's definitely unique because all the people you're mentioning who won did have a switch to flip, and it was a switch that not only was good in a comp, at a competitive situation or competitive cooking TV show, but also you could imagine that is kind of what it takes to survive in a high stakes kitchen environment, right? Like it doesn't have to be bullying and aggressive and traditionally macho, but it does have to be just savage. You just have to mm-hmm. crush it, right? Yeah. The, the language of the kitchen are usually very violent words like that. Both Sarah and Shoda are successful in their professional lives, but they are also super chill. I mean, her dream is to own a cannery. That's her dream. Right. Like I can see that being a nice detour or a happy place to land, but that's her dream. Okay. No, I- but it was wild to watch them. I like as soon as they paired up together, I was like, "This is a, this is a wrap." No, no. But also, but like, if Melissa and Gregory had teamed up during All Stars, I think everyone else would have been sweating it, being like, "Well, that's that's yeah. done. That's right. a wrap." Everyone just likes them, and also they they didn't take their foot off the gas because they're better cooks. They did something that they were concerned about because it seemed so off the wall. But of course, it was exactly the right kind of off the wall to make everybody notice and be totally odd. So. If anything, since we usually end up, we wrap up by saying this, like I think their front runner status is is affirmed. Yeah, for sure affirmed. I, I I guess I was just asking whether or not you felt like that lack of it factor or that X factor of that competitive edge, which I think will probably come out because even last night or even this episode, I was saying to my, I was kind of surprised because I was like, oh, we have actually like gotten rid of a bunch of people. Like now we are down to four or five people, all of whom I think have a chance of winning and are good, you know? I was about to say that. It's getting late super early. It, I was taken aback as well as like when they were doing the quick fire because usually there's some people's dishes you barely even see them get tasted because there just yeah. aren't enough people there. Yeah. No, we're we're already down and then we lost two more chefs. Obviously one's coming back. But in terms of who actually is a threat to win right now, 
I don't see it. If I, I out of Shoda, Sarah, and Gabe from Austin, I don't see it right now. Yeah. Show me more. Show me more. Is that, is that, was that an inspiring coach would say? <laughs> um, all right, we can wrap it up there. We'll be back on Monday to talk about Mayor of Easttown, but let's now get into my interview with Rob McElhenney, who is one of the co-creators of Mythic Quest, one of the co-creators of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia and the star of both of those shows. And great conversation about making TV during COVID, about why uh, he wanted to do this specific show and this specific season the way he did. And a really thoughtful conversation about um, growing up being a TV fan. So I hope people enjoy it. Check out Mythic Quest. It's on Apple TV this weekend. And we'll see you Monday. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash. Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's. Huzzah. A toast to breakfast. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Rob, thank you so much for joining me today. This is a little bit, um, I'm sure you're familiar with the Spider-Man meme with two guys pointing at each other, but it is... Sort of strange to be able to talk to another Philadelphian in his early to mid forties who also went to Temple. So this is very exciting for me. I think we've we've really nailed this demographic. If it makes you feel any better, I only went to Temple for like a month. I only went for a year, so that's good. We oh, both, all right. we, well, there we go. Yeah, um, we may have paths on our way out. So yeah, I was curious if we could start. I don't want to do too much of like a Mark Marin type startup here, but I wanted to kind of, as a fellow Philadelphian, uh, and this is not a Philadelphia podcast per, per se, but as a fellow Philadelphian, I was kind of curious if you could tell me a little bit about growing up and what your relationship was to like film and TV as you were kind of growing up and what shaped that in Philly particularly. Because for me, obviously it was a very specific experience of going to like TLA and getting movies from certain video stores in the city or going to certain movie theaters. And, um, you know, we grew up at a time when TV wasn't considered like high art in, a, in the way I think it is now. But can you tell me a little bit about falling in love with storytelling in that way? Sure, yeah. I mean, I, I, I love movies. I, I loved going to the movies. I, I loved going to West Coast Video, if you remember yeah. West Coast Video. <laughs> sure. before, well before there was a blockbuster, there was West Coast Video on the East Coast, of course. And we would rent the tapes and, you know, the experience of going there with my brothers and sisters and my dad, and you'd spend an hour just, I mean, what I realized was he was killing time. <laughs> uh, with kids, now that I have my own, I'm like, right, you just find things to just like eat up the time until they can fall asleep sometimes. And so we would go and if you remember the experience of like walking down the aisles and trying to pick out a movie, it was such a tactile experience as opposed to now where you're just skimming through on the, on the screen and it was communal in some ways, and it was really it was really fun. And we'd go and and pick out movies and, and come home and watch them. So I've always been a big movie fan, but I would say that my thing is TV, and always has been. It's always been my thing. Growing up, it was just something that we all did together. At times, it was something that I looked towards for alone time. It was something that made me laugh, or brought me laughs, and brought me joy. And also oftentimes um, actually helps me get through difficult 
times and navigate difficult experiences. I think some people hear that and they think it's sad or shallow that I had moments of catharsis sitting alone watching other people on screen. But I, I, I disagree wholeheartedly. I, I, I found real solace in that. I, I would always feel less alone when I was finished with an episode of my, of my favorite show. And then it was something I could talk about either with my brothers and sisters or my dad uh, or my moms uh, or my friends at, at, at school. So TV was always my thing. Do you remember a show or even an episode of a show when you were growing up where you started to think about TV, not as like a companion, but as, as, as an art form, as like the storytelling that you were seeing on television and you were starting to think more critically about, oh, when I watch NYPD Blue or when I watch Friends or something like that, this, they're doing something that other shows aren't doing. Yes, uh, distinctly. Um, Golden Girls. Oh, wow. Golden Girls was one of my favorite shows. And it was my, one of my favorite shows because it was on every Saturday night. And it was on at 9 o'clock. And I would, they would, my, I would only get to see my mother, um, my two mothers, every other weekend. And so when we went there, we would spend um, all day together. But at night, on Saturday nights, we would watch the Golden Girls together. And it was a really fun communal experience between my brother, my sister, my two mothers. And we were all laughing together, laughing at the same jokes. And then sometimes they would be laughing at jokes that we didn't really get. But we just absolutely loved those, those women and loved that show. And I think I was probably... And we would really look forward to it every Saturday for years. And then... I remember as I was in my mid to late teens, or no, mid early to mid teens, I realized I was watching the same episode over and over and over again. That, you know, just like lots of TV shows, especially of that era, it was just the characters were Popeye, essentially. I am what I am, what I am, what I am, all the way through every single episode. And every time Blanche would say something, it was to demonstrate who she was. Every time Rose said something, it would be to further demonstrate who her character was, Sophia, and of course, Dorothy. And so I realized like, wow, it's almost like they're taking a, a template and they're just rewriting lines of dialogue. And yet they're all kind of the same story over and over and over again, where they're learning the same things over and over and over again. And there was such a, um, familiarity to it, to the structure itself. And yet I could recognize that it was a complete art form because they were making it different every week. And it wasn't the same joke, even though it was still Rose is sweet, but dumb. Blanche is oversexed. Dorothy is the straight person that's basically commenting on everything. And Sophia is the wild card who will say and do anything. Every single time they would, they would say something, it was something different. For years, for years they <laughs> yeah. did this. And I thought, wow, there's somebody, are they making that up like every week? Because even at the time I thought, I don't know, maybe these women are so funny. I just didn't put the pieces together. California, Los Angeles, Hollywood, that was another planet as far as I was concerned. It just seemed like a bunch of funny women were getting in a room together and being funny. And so that was the first step. And then the second, that was like the book opening. Mm -hmm. And then the book sort of like slamming me in the face was Seinfeld. Because I kept watching that show and, and seeing it be completely different than Golden Girls, where they were making 
anything they want. And it was every week was so different. And it was like a completely different way of telling a, a sitcom story. And it was like deconstructing sitcoms in a lot of ways. And I kept seeing the same name over and over and over again, a name that I realized I wasn't looking for in other shows. And that was Larry David. And I would watch it and be like, who is this Larry David guy? And then I would go back and watch old episodes of shows that I loved. Golden Girls would be a good example of it. Family Ties. And I would look for who was the executive producer? Mm -hmm. Who are the writers? Who are the people that, you know, Susan Harris, who created the show, or Paul Junger Witt, or, or Gary David Goldberg? I would see these names and be like, right, there's more than just Michael J. Fox. There's more than just B. Arthur. There's more than just Jerry and Elaine. There are these people that are making these shows and they live somewhere else. It almost feels like, you know, when you when you grow up watching TV in that way, the sustainability and the longevity of a show is is part of the appeal. And it, it's been it's been interesting, you know, obviously I'm a huge Sunny fan and it's been a, like a part of my life for more than a decade and then you've got Mythic Quest which definitely seems like it has legs. Like if you guys wanted to just keep doing Mythic Quest, like there's just endless amounts of different like variables you could throw in there. Do you think that like longevity is actually like an underappreciated component of television at this point. Cause you see so many shows that are limited or it's a kind of a mini series, or maybe we'll come back and do another, or it's like, there's just three seasons. I think what happens is that you have super creative people who want to try different things and mm -hmm. to do different things. And it used to be that you signed onto a television show and you weren't allowed to do anything else. You did 24 episodes of that show, which took you almost the entire year. And then you really weren't able to, whether you had, the, even if you had the time contractually, you were not able to go and do other things. That's all gone now. Um, now the fact that we can, we, we have the ability to only do 10 episodes a season of something and the old way of doing things where we're holding back actors from, uh, and writers from other opportunities is dead. So now you can stretch your your wings and go and try uh, different things, and so that's really um, helpful for us. I know I know the way that we have sort of approach Sunny, which is, hey, we can make Sunny in four months, and then that allows us eight months to go and do other things. And if even on Sunny we continue to stretch, the characters don't learn or grow or change in any way. Um, but we do as human beings. And then we try to challenge ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, and it becomes a challenge in and of itself just to try to make a new episode of Sunny every time we go out. But then we also have the opportunity to go and do other things. So like, I think that I hope that, that there are a lot of people out there who are making these series that people love and then they continue to make them because they're gratified by continuing to make them and that they don't feel creatively stifled by, quote unquote, doing the same thing every week. Because I don't think anybody would watch a season of Sunny and think, oh, well, they're just doing the same thing every week. I mean, we, right. do, we, we would stop making the show if that was the case. You know, you mentioned uh, earlier that you've often gone to television as like a kind of cathartic or a companion piece during tough times. And I was wondering whether or not your television viewing habits changed over the course of this last year, you know, with, uh, with the pandemic and stuff and whether or not you found yourself returning to shows that you already loved as a kind of like blanket or whether or not you were like, 
shit, I have so much time. Like, I'm going to watch this show that I never seen. I've, I, now I have time to catch up on five seasons of X or Y or Z. Did you, did you find a different television viewer during the last year? I did. And a lot of it revolved around my children, actually, because my kids are now at an age 10 and 9 where we can watch a lot of the same content and both of us, all of us, can really enjoy it. So I did introduce my children to Golden Girls. Um, and oh, that's, that's been incredible because, full disclosure, Betty White uh, is a neighbor of mine. And like I would say <laughs> that out of, I do not get starstruck because I've been doing this for so long. I'm, I'm tongue-tied around her because she is a, a brilliant comedian actor, but also because she has such a special place like in my heart that has nothing to do with her. Like she, she doesn't have that relationship with me. I have that with her, which is always interesting. Yeah. Really interesting. But like my kids know Betty White and now they're watching <laughs> Golden Girls, and they're like, "Oh, that's Betty. That's Betty." We're like, "No, that's Rose Nyland. That's a completely different person." But we also, yeah, it, it, that's been a really interesting thing to kind of watch TV through their eyes. Two kids who grew up with their parents doing this um, for a living, and how they sort of interact with their television shows. But we have been watching a lot of stuff together. So mm -hmm. The Simpsons, which I haven't watched consistently for many years, I'm now watching a lot more Simpsons because that's something that we can watch together, which has been great. And then they're introducing me to shows that I had never seen before, Adventure Time, which I'd never seen before, which is a brilliant show. And to be able to watch that with them. And then for every time they get to introduce a show to me, we introduce another show to them. So we started watching Amazing Stories, mm -hmm. um, the original Amazing Stories yeah. from the 80s. Because I remember being 10 years old or even younger and watching that with my dad and having a really great communal experience. And so we went back and watched every one of those twice. And then they were like, Oh, we want more of this. So I said, well, let's watch the twilight zone. And I remember the twilight zone, the reboot that they did in the eighties. So we watched that first. And then they were like, we want more of this. I said, let's go back and watch the twilight zone from the beginning. So we started the Rod Serling twilight zone from episode one. Wow. And we ripped through that. So we're all over the place as, as, a, as a family, but it's been a, a really great year for, for that kind of experience with us. Tell me a little bit about the timeline of working on this second season and, and especially on the two specials. So when things shut down, I guess, last March or so, where were you guys? In the, so I said that I think the first season aired in February, right, of 2020. And then had you guys started writing and thinking about the second season already? What was the sort of timeline there so that the listeners can understand the chronology? Buddy, we had written an entire season, oh, wow. season two, and then we were shooting episode one of season two. And the last day, of, and this was when the world was shutting down, certainly this country was shutting down. And I, I just remember we were on a beach in Malibu and Charlotte and I, as Poppy and I, and were on horseback doing this like promo for the game within the show. And I just was on the phone constantly with all of our advisors and trying to figure out what the right thing to do was. And finally, I remember just making the call, like, that's it. Cameras off cut. We're going, we're going home. And we thought, well, you know, we have all the episodes banked. We'll just I don't, we, this is obviously very naive. This was in the early days of the pandemic. We thought, well, we'll just go down for two weeks or three weeks and then we'll, 
we'll come back and and just pick it up. And yeah. we realized very quickly that that was not going to be the case, that the world was going to be different, completely different from that point forward. And it was dawning on us very slowly, um, but but very seriously, that we had to throw that episode out that we shot and throw out the entire second season of scripts because they didn't make any sense anymore. We couldn't make a season of a television show that didn't address the fact that we were living in the time that we were living in. Mm -hmm. So we started over. And during the pandemic, we made an episode in quarantine, and then we wrote an entire second season of the show. Okay. What was the impetus behind doing uh, Everlight? Was that because you wanted to have like a kind of a bridge episode or a little bit more of a, you know, an optimistic kind of um, affirmative episode heading into the second season? Yeah. So, so we left the characters having, having done a, an episode in quarantine, which was shot entirely in quarantine. Nobody left their homes. And we were dealing with the, the, the show the way that we always deal with the show, which is we want to make a, a relatable office comedy. And we want to make it funny and fun, but we also want to be authentic. And uh, what was authentic to, to people's experiences was that it was fun and funny to navigate work life over mm-hmm. Zoom, but it was also really difficult and challenging. And there were mental health issues and, and issues of isolation and, and all sorts of things that were wrapped up in, in our, shared exper- our shared global experience over the last year. Um, and so we did that episode, too, and it was really well received and people seemed to really dig it. And yet we knew that when we were writing the second season, we were going to be airing sometime in the spring or summer of 2021. And we knew even at the time, this wasn't going to be over, but we, we had a, an optimistic hope that we would be looking towards a future where it was over. And we kind of took the bet that people were going to be sick of talking about viral loads and quarantine and isolation and that, and they didn't want to hear the word COVID again. So we made it a challenge of our, to ourselves to, to make a season of TV where we didn't say the word COVID once. We barely talk about um, the previous year because we felt like people weren't going to want that in, in what our show is and was. And yet, we also felt like we couldn't just jump from quarantine into an optimistic future where COVID um, is in the rearview mirror without at least addressing the fact that the uh, that coming back to work is going to be an adjustment and it's going to be difficult for people both practically uh, and emotionally from a mental health perspective so so how do we navigate that in an episode that is the bookend to the quarantine episode we're recognizing that covid happened the pandemic happened and that we've now returned to work vaccinated and and ready to 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 start anew uh, and yet we wanted to feel authentic to the difficulties that people are going to go through. And then when it was over, that people would feel like we closed that, that book and have moved on. Yeah. It's strange. I mean, like I've, I've been watching like some SVU episodes where there's a lot of like mask on mask off stuff that they're going through. And like, it's, it's pretty disorienting on one hand. I think that I crave, you know, to have like art that, talks about the experience that we've all had over the year and to reflect it accurately. And on the other hand, I'm like, I really just want to watch SVU. You know what I mean? Like I, I really just yeah. want to see like a, a normal episode of television to take me away from the whole day that I've just had that is zoom calls and masks and, and hand sanitizer. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's the way we approached it, which was we did two episodes that, that I'm personally very proud of that I think address uh, all, everything uh, COVID that we possibly could. And now we're, we're moving on. 
we're really we're trying to move on. I had a, an interesting reaction watching the second season, uh, watching then the first two episodes, which which go up soon. And I wanted to ask you something. I don't know if you get asked about a lot with Mythic Quest, which is the look of the show, because I realized that like. I found, I was I found it very like it was so great to see the characters that I love again and it's so awesome to be back in this world and I found myself obviously feeling somewhat like soothed or comforted by it but the characters are all screaming at each other like in a fun way but like there's all this you know there's obviously like conflicts within this office and you know in Sunny just to talk about a show that you're obviously also heavily involved in I think it's a, a grittier look you know it has like more of a handheld look obviously that might be somewhat of a an extension of the origins of the show of you guys just kind of making it yourselves and stuff. But, you know, Mythic Quest has such like a different tone and a different look. And I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about it because for most viewers, I bet that's invisible. Like I, I bet they don't notice how a show like Mythic Quest maybe looks per se, but I imagine it's something you put a lot of thought into. Oh yeah. Yeah. We wanted it to make, we want Sunny by design has a very gritty feel to it. Um, that it almost feels quote unquote homemade. That was something that we, that was out of necessity when we made it for the first time because we made it at home. Uh, and then we just thought, Oh, this kind of works. Let's just keep it going. And then we've actively tried to, to try to make it look and feel like that all the way through. Whereas mythic quest, we wanted it to feel a little bit more cinematic and a little bit more beautiful. And then also a little bit more realistic, which I know sounds odd when you're also talking about making it cinematic. We just wanted the characters from a tonal perspective to feel like they really exist, like they're real human beings. Now, it's still a television show and it's a comedy. So you're, you're talking about the extreme versions of people. But whereas Sonny is essentially a live action cartoon, those people do not exist, thankfully. <laughs> um, those are cartoon characters because it's a satire. And that's the way that we're able to tell those kinds of stories that we do. Whereas that, that, I believe, would be irresponsible to tell the kind of stories we do in Mythic Quest the same way, because we are presenting these people as real human beings. Um, and so there is change and growth in these characters, and there's room for growth, and there's room for catharsis, um, which just simply can't really exist in Sunny. I think we have maybe, maybe one moment of catharsis in the entire series of Sunny, whereas Mythic Quest, we're having them every, every episode. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, and we wanted it to look. We wanted it to look like um, you were watching a movie. There are certain episodes, um, specifically in the first season of Mythic Quest, that I shot, I directed to look like a movie, a Dark Quiet Death, for example, um, which was the fifth episode of last season. And there's another one this year um, called Backstory that's shot. I made it. I tried to make it feel as much like a a movie shot in the seventies as I possibly could. Does that keep it fresh for you? Does that keep it fun for you to give yourself little challenges like that? Not little challenges, but challenges like that? Yes. Yes, that's why I continue to do it. I mean, I love what I do for a living and I recognize how um, how privileged I am that I get to do it. And it do- it's not going away. I don't, when I see or hear about people like, oh, go, like laying by the pool, you know, on a Tuesday because they don't have, they're not going to work. That's great. And I'm happy for them. I, I don't feel that. I, I remember when I was a kid on Sundays, I would get, um, you know, it's like Sunday afternoon would come by and Sunday night and you'd get that pit in your stomach because you had to go back to school. And yeah, the like, Sunday scaries. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So m- miserable. I, I found that the last 15 years of my life on Sundays, I start to get really excited. And I didn't 
really recognize what that was. By Sunday night, I can't sleep. And I'm like, what, what is that? Why, why is that happening? And it's because I'm, I'm genuinely excited for Monday morning. I love it. I love it. I love doing it. I love the people I work with. I love that I, I'm, I'm, li- I'm living my dream. And so I don't take that for granted, um, which a lot of pe- I see a lot of people doing and it makes me sad. I, 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 I love what I do and I, don't, I know that it will end because it ends for everybody. And so I'm going to take full advantage of it as much as I can and, and challenge myself and learn and surround myself with people way more talented than me with differing points of view from differing backgrounds who can help me become a better person and help me be- make better television. You know, I've heard we've had different writers and different showrunners on on the pod before, and it's always interesting when I feel like I've found somebody who is treating the show that they're working on currently as like the box that everything can go into. And I was wondering if you felt that way about Mythic Quest, where it's like any kind of writing or any kind of filmmaking you want to try can be contained with this format that you've come up with or the story that you've come up with for Mythic Quest. And if you wanted to do an animated episode or an action adventure episode or a 1970s homage to, you know, whatever, that it can support that. Did you go into Mythic Quest? First of all, do you think, do you agree with me that that's the case for Mythic Quest? And did you go into it looking for something as malleable as that? Yeah, that's a, that's a cool question. I, I, the answer is yes. Um, we well no actually the 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 answer is the answer is <laughs> no to the last part of your question. We went into it uh, just thinking, hey, let's just write a funny show about a video game. Mm-hmm. But then what you find is like nothing is ever just oh let's just do something simple because it would be fun. When you sit down with other people and you start talking about what interests you and why you're doing it and what is the motivation, not of the characters, but what is your what is our motivation? Why are we in this room right now? Why are we talking about this? What, what is it that excites us about this? Why are we, why do we choose this profession over another profession? Why is it that we're all in this room together? You know, what was your life like? What was your relationship with your parents? What neighborhood did you grow up with? And you know, what, what about, um, being the ethnicity that you are informs your creative output? How can you tell me more about your experience so that I can understand where you're coming from? And then that makes me grow and, and become a better person. And then shit, how can we put this all in one television show? And right. that's what's that honestly, that's what excites me. That's why I go to work every day at this point in my life. I go there, which I recognize is, 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 and I'm so, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to do so, um, is an, is, is a ridiculous privilege. It, it is ridiculous that I can even say that, that that's why I go to work every day, but it's true. And I, I get to sit there amongst really talented people and they get to tell me their stories. And then we try to figure out how we can tell those stories uh, in 30 minutes or, or around that. And that's exciting to me. That's a challenge. And you have all of these tools at your disposal to do it in a completely different way. And because Sonny's been on for so long, we do versions of that with Sonny, but the template has been set and it's, it's difficult once you've like set that template to completely rewire a television show. Whereas this from the very beginning of Mythic Quest, you'll see this season is much more experimental, even more so than the first. Um, It's, it's so exciting to be able to sit down and do that every day. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's like Mythic is actually does some what m- my favorite kind of television does, which is, I-, I guess it's like, give you what you need by giving you what you want. Like you get 
you think what you want is like this, you know, this sitcom so that you can kind of return to these same characters and go to these familiar situations over and over again. But then at the end of an episode, you actually wind up coming away from it being like, oh, they tried this this time. Or I didn't think that the, that character would get to lead their own episode ever or go in this direction. So it's it's a very exciting time for these kinds of shows. I've heard you talk about Atlanta and Fleabag and, and, and some other shows that are kind of messing around with the 30-minute model of like what we would call a comedy, but is in fact like anything you really want it to be. It must be a really exciting time to be working in this particular format. There, there are just simply no rules. And it's just great when you work with studio partners who um, recognize that and they want you to experiment and they want you to try new things and they want you to, they want you to grow and expand and do something different. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that, that there's not a lot of pandering, at least in the conversations that I'm having, to the assumption that uh, the global now global audience isn't going to quote unquote get mm-hmm. what you're trying to do. Uh, I think those days are long past us. We recognize that the audience is savvy and smart and they know what they like and they are as adventurous as we are. And if you present them with shit, they're not going to like it, whether it's experimental or not. But if you, if you present them with something that's, that's good. Now that's a relative term. Everybody's got their, especially in comedy, everybody has their version of what that is. But I think what, what definitely shines through no matter what is effort. And if it's clear that, that, that people uh, recognize the opportunity that they have, which is to be welcomed into your home or your phone or your, whatever your day is, wherever you're traveling, if you're on a subway or a bus or sitting in your home, that you're welcoming those people into your life for 30 minutes, um, that that is a privilege and an honor. And that if you are not taking that seriously, then they will turn you off and you will, you will no longer become a part of their lives. But if you take that seriously and you do your best, uh, I think that comes through. And I think that people can, can see that and they can, they can feel that. Do you get competitive with other shows at all? Like when you see something that you're like, ah, God damn it, I didn't think of that. Like, do you ever, do you get spurred on? 100%. If anybody comes on to this show and tells you that they don't, they are lying. Of course, of course, of course. You're, it, 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 look, there's good versions of that and there are, that there, there are toxic versions of that. The, the, the toxic version is the version that is competitive out of jealousy of the attention that another show might be getting or the marketing budget that another show might get, get, might be getting. And of course, I'm guilty of that. Every, everybody is um, to a certain extent. But the really constructive version of that is when you see somebody do something and they just kind of blow your mind for a minute and you say, oh, they're the only people that could have done that. Mm-hmm. What's my version of that? And it's so inspiring. You know, when you watch a show like Pen15 or you watch a show like Broad City or you watch a show like Atlanta, at, again, just naming comedies, but you watch those shows and, and you realize, oh, those are the only people that could make that show. And they could phone it in if they want, but they don't. They've decided that they want to keep stretching and growing and doing a weird version of what they can do. And it inspires me to continue to do the same and to not um, get stuck in, in the rut of just producing content, which is my least favorite word in our <laughs> industry. Well, man, I'm really excited for people to be able to see the second uh, season of Mythic Quest. And I'm so glad you were able to join me finally. It was uh, really great talking to you. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you for listening to The Watch. We are produced, as always, by Kaya McMullen, and we are part of the Ringer Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.